What a joy it is to gather together on the Lord's day to worship the Lord. And it's one man's refusal to do anything except worship the Lord on the Lord's day that made him a famous figure in history. His name is Eric Little. He was the son of Scottish missionaries and was born in Tianjin, China in 1902. At a relatively young age, he also developed a desire to be a missionary to China. Like many missionary kids, his parents sent him to a boarding school near London. And it was, as he was growing up, he discovered he was good at sports and that he was pretty fast. And this continued when he went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He began to compete and run in races and win races. He developed a reputation for this. He was known as the Flying Scotsman. And as his reputation grew, more attention uh, came on him, and people began to say, this guy has a chance to be an Olympic champion. And there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm in the UK, and particularly in Scotland, because this would be their chance to finally have a gold medalist in the 100-meter race, which they had never had before. And so as his fame and notoriety grew, um, as the 1924 Olympics approached, which were held in Paris. But in 1923, the schedule of events for the 1924 Olympics was released. And when it was released, Eric saw that the, one of the heats for the 100-meter race was held on a Sunday. And he decided, with little hesitation, he would not compete in the 100-meter race. His best race, the race that he was favored to win, Olympic gold, he said no. Sunday is the Lord's day. And as you can imagine, he began to face a lot of pressure and opposition for his conviction that Sunday was the Lord's day and he would not compete on the Lord's day. The British Olympic Committee pressured him, talking to him, trying to convince him, no, it's okay, the race isn't until the afternoon, you can do this. A lot of pressure. They thought that he was going to come around. They thought he would budge. And so they applied pressure on him, but he was unmovable. And he began to face ridicule from his fellow countrymen because they were looking to him to bring them glory. And so they thought he was a fanatic. And they, began to be, they became angry. And he faced pressure, he faced criticism, but it did not faze him. He held fast to his conviction. Sunday's Lord's Day, I'm not going to compete in the 100-meter race. And so as the Olympics approached, he decided to train for the 400-meter race. If you know, there was a big difference between the 100-meter race and the 400-meter race. He was a sprinter, not a quarter-miler. But he decided anyways to train for that race. And as he trained, he indeed qualified. And after qualifying, once the Olympics began, he uh, made it to the finals. But the odds were not in his favor when the final race took place. Uh, there was actually an American named Horatio Fitch who was favored to win. In the semifinal heat, he set a new world record. And Fitch's coach told him, don't worry about Eric Little. He's a sprinter. He's going to fade with 50 meters to go in the race. And then Eric had the outside lane. If you're a runner, you know the outside lane is the worst lane. You don't know what's happening behind you. And so when the race began, he shot out like a sprinter. 
And one of his friends in the, in the stadium was watching was dismayed. He's like, Eric's going out too fast. He doesn't know what's happening behind him. He's treating this like a 100 meter or 200 meter race. And so Eric went out fast. His friend and probably many others thought he's gonna fade. He's gonna die. But he maintained his lead. And as he came around the final turn, one of his friends listening back home on the radio heard the announcer say, Eric is maintaining his lead. His lead is increasing. It's increasing. Oh, what a race. And indeed he won. He won the gold medal. To the shock and surprise, the crowd went wild. And if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, that's where the movie ends. The movie ends shortly after he won the gold medal in the 1924 Olympics in Paris in the 400-meter race. And the movie gives passing reference to what took place in the rest of his life. But you see, what took place in the rest of his life is actually far more extraordinary than what he accomplished in the 1924 Olympics. Eric Little said, It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Eric shocked the world because after the Olympics, he retired at a very young age from racing. He said, I'm done. He could have continued to compete. He could have continued to win. He could have continued to bring more glory to himself, to his country. But he said, I'm done. I'm going to China to be a missionary. And sure enough, he went on to be a missionary in China. He served in China doing all kinds of gospel ministry. He eventually met and married the woman who became his wife. And they had two daughters as they continued to do ministry together in China. But things became dangerous in China in 1937 when the Japanese army invaded the country. Eventually, the situation was not safe for his family to remain. So he sent his wife back to Canada with their two daughters while she was pregnant with their third daughter. She was from Canada. But Eric stayed. He stayed despite the danger. He stayed because of his conviction that the Lord had called him there to do ministry to serve the Lord. Eventually, Eric, along with many others, was rounded up and sent to an internment camp. As you can imagine, the situation there was bleak. Life was hard. Those there suffered. I want to read you a little bit about what took place when Eric was in the internment camp. This is from a book by Eric Metaxas, and he writes... Eric, known as Uncle Eric to the children of the camp, lived in tight quarters with his friends Edwin Davis and Joseph McChesney Clark. As he always had, Eric threw himself heart and soul into his work and volunteer activities. He taught in the camp school, organized softball, basketball, cricket, and tennis games, and planned worship services. He organized square dances and played chess with the kids, anything to keep them out of trouble. Eric took special interest in the 300 children who had been taken out of the China Inland Mission School and were now living in the camp without their parents. He thought of his own three girls, so fortunate to be better in better circumstances. No matter how busy he was, Eric never neglected his daily time with God. Each morning, Eric and his friend, Joe Cotterell, woke early and quietly pursued their devotions together by the light 
of a peanut oil lamp before beginning a long day of work. Although he deeply missed his family, Eric stayed cheerful for the sake of the others. In a Bible study class, he taught others to love their enemies, including the Japanese guards at their camp. And he exhorted his fellow Christians to pray for them as the Bible instructed. This one lesson made such an extraordinary impact on Joe Cotterill that he promised if God that if he survived the war, he would become a missionary to Japan. The Lord used Eric in powerful ways. But he became sick in that camp. He became ill. It was later discovered that he had a brain tumor. And in February of 1945, he died in that camp, separated from his family, never having met his third daughter. 63 years after his death, it was revealed that Eric had been included in a prisoner exchange deal between Japan and Britain and had given up his place to a pregnant woman. Eric Little finished the race. He endured separation from his family, imprisonment, sickness, and an untimely death. But he never wavered, keeping the faith with his eyes on Jesus. If he could speak to us now, he would say, it was all worth it. Our passage today speaks of the race of faith and tells us how we are to run it. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews entitled, Hold Fast. And our passage today is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. In these verses, we are called to run the race of faith with endurance, looking to Jesus and embracing the Lord's discipline. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17, and I encourage you to follow along. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Brothers and sisters, we are in a race. If you are a Christian, then you are in the race of faith, whether you know it or not, whether it feels like it or not, whether you have acknowledged it or not, whether you are living like it or not, you are in a race and we need to embrace this. We need to embrace the truth that as followers of Jesus, we are in the race of faith. By embracing the truth that we are in the race of faith, we are helped to shake off apathy, to turn from apathy and laziness and indifference. If, you, if you've ever competed or trained, you understand that if you are lazy or apathetic, it's not going to go well for you. Those who compete, those who can train, do so with, with discipline, with focus, when in te- with intentionality. We too are called to live our lives as followers of Jesus with discipline, with focus, with intentionality. We are in a race and we need to live like it. What we see in Hebrews 12 is that in this race, we must run with endurance. Look to Jesus and embrace discipline. First, we need to run with endurance. Toward the end of chapter 10, in verses 35 and 36, the author of Hebrews said, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Hebrew Christians were in need of endurance because they faced trials and suffering. When they heard the gospel, they received it with joy and they followed Jesus. But what they discovered was that following Jesus came at a cost. They began to suffer for their faith in significant ways. And the suffering that they experienced caused them to grow weary. Some of them stopped gathering as we are gathering now. Some of them wavered in regard to their confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews exhorted them, don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. You need to keep going in spite of what you are suffering, in spite of the opposition 
that you are facing. You need to keep going even though it is costly. You have need of endurance. And then in chapter 11, he provided all of these wonderful examples of heroes of the faith who had gone before them. And in that list of heroes of the faith in chapter 11, we see sinners who were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith, they endured. They ran the race. They finished the race. By God's grace, through faith, they accomplished wonderful things. They suffered all kinds of trials and hardships. And so in chapter 10, the author is saying, you need to endure. And then in chapter 11, he provided all these wonderful, wonderful examples of saints who had gone before them and had, in fact, endured. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, he referenced those heroes of the faith when he said, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, these heroes of the faith are these cloud of witnesses that surround us. They have passed the baton. They ran the race of faith. They endured and they finished and they passed the baton to the next generation. And that is what has been taking place. Every generation of Christians is called to run the race with endurance. And when they finish, they pass the baton to the next generation, and then to the next generation, and then to the next generation. And now we who are alive today are running the race, and we're called to run with endurance because the baton has been passed to us. Imagine you're running a race. And it's a hard race. Your heart is pounding. Your lungs are burning. Your legs feel heavy. It's a hard race and you're wondering, how can I finish this race? How can anyone finish this race? But then you look up to see a stadium full of people who have in fact run and finished the race. What does that do for you? It reminds you that by God's grace, through faith, you too can endure and finish the race. Now that these heroes of the faith completed the race, have passed the baton, and surround us, we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are in need of endurance and we must run the race of faith with endurance. What does it mean to run the race of faith with endurance? It means that we do not swerve from our loyalty to Jesus and commitment to following him even when we face trials and suffering. We maintain our confidence in the truth and power of the gospel, even when the going gets tough. We continue to follow Jesus. We continue to seek him first. We continue to obey his word and submit ourselves to him. Even when we are hard pressed, even when things don't turn out the way we had hoped in our lives, even when we face loss and disappointment, even when we go through those periods of times where it doesn't seem like anything is going right, 
even then, we remain loyal to Jesus. We maintain our resolve to follow him. We do not swerve. We do not let go. We do not shrink back. Running the race of faith, living the Christian life is not easy, but requires strength and discipline. We have to endure. To do this, we must shed, discard, and get rid of anything that slows us down or trips us up in the race. Brothers and sisters, what is slowing you down? What is tripping you up? Maybe you need to throw off the opinions and judgments of others, like Eric Little, and boldly hold the biblical convictions regardless of what others think about you. Maybe you need to look carefully at how much time you give to distractions, such as news media, social media, and entertainment media. Maybe you have a specific sin that continues to trip you up. And now is the time to lay it aside by confessing to a brother or sister in Christ and seeking meaningful accountability. Perhaps it's that root of bitterness that our author mentions in our passage. Maybe it's sexual immorality that is also referenced in our passage. Whatever it is, do not make peace with whatever is holding you back with whatever is tripping you up. Don't make peace with it. Don't minimize it. Don't justify it. Don't ignore it. Don't be indifferent towards it. By the power of the Spirit, get rid of it. Deal with it severely. Whatever it is, it is not worth it. Just like the Hebrew Christians, you are in need of endurance. And to endure, you must shed that which weighs you down and trips you up. Second, we must look to Jesus. When athletes train, they are reminded time and time again, keep your eye on the prize. Think about their routines. They have a routine for everything. They have a routine regarding their sleep. They're intentional about when they sleep and how much sleep they get. They have routine regarding what they eat, what they put into their body and how that affects them. They're disciplined about their eating habits. They're disciplined about their training habits. They push their bodies hard, as hard as they can. They're disciplined about their rest habits and their recovery habits. They're intentional about rest and recovery. They're, in, they're intentional about treatment, getting the right treatment for their bodies so their bodies will be healthy and strong. And what drives them? Why are they willing to subject themselves to this? The athletes who discipline themselves, who are willing to sacrifice and who endure the pain, believe the prize is worth it. They train and compete for a prize. Maybe it's the fame that comes with success. Maybe it's the money. Maybe it's a gold medal, a championship. Maybe it's a legacy. They want to be remembered as being great. They dedicate themselves to obtaining a prize that will not 
last. We have something better. We have something infinitely more valuable and satisfying. We have something that will last for all eternity. Our something is a someone. If we are going to run the race of faith with endurance, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our prize. He is our reward. We must believe that he is worth it. Of course, the difference in this analogy is not that if we run well, then we get Jesus. No, by faith, we get Jesus here and now. We are united to him by faith here and now. We experience him here and now, but our prize is eternity with him. And therefore, we keep our eyes on him, seeking to please him here and now, seeking to do what is good in his eyes here and now. We delight in him. We keep our eyes on him. Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He weighed it in the balance. He weighed the good things in his life with knowing Jesus. He said, there's no comparison. All the good things I've gained in this life, I consider as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is far better than the best things this world has to offer. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? In your heart, do you believe that Jesus is better? Do you believe that Jesus is worth it? Are you looking to him? We need to also remember how he endured for us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What does that mean? What was the joy that was set before him? He did not need to die on the cross for his sake. What then was the joy that was set before him that helped him to endure the cross? The joy that was set before him was the salvation of his people. He endured the cross to save sinners. His joy was saving us. What an amazing thought. Brothers and sisters, don't let this pass you by. Don't miss this. His joy was in saving us that we might be united to him for all of eternity. His delight is in his people. That joy, that delight that he has in us is what helped him to endure the cross. What did he endure? He endured humiliation, scorn, ridicule. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was stripped of his clothes and exposed. He was tortured in a way that's hard for us to comprehend. Hard for us to wrap our minds around. He was tortured in a brutal way. 
And then he was executed in the worst way that the Romans could come up with. They nailed him to a cross whereby he died slowly in excruciating pain. Now, some may say, yeah, but he wasn't the only one. There were others. There were others who were ridiculed, who were beaten, who were crucified. Yes, but his death was unique. Not only was he humiliated, not only was he ridiculed, not only was he tortured, not only did he die in a horrific way, but he also suffered the wrath of God for the sins of his people. At the cross, the cup of God's wrath was poured out on Christ for our sins. Jesus experienced this. He endured the cross because of the joy of saving, saving us and being with us for all eternity. We look to Jesus to be encouraged by his extraordinary love for us, demonstrated by his willingness to endure unimaginable suffering for us. His willingness to endure serves as our example. When we are tempted to waver, when we are tempted to let go, when we are tempted to shrink back, when we are tempted to fall away, we remember that he endured for us. And his example of enduring inspires and motivates and encourages us to endure as well. We will never endure what he endured for us. But we will suffer. We will face hardship and trial. When that happens, we look to Jesus who endured for us so that we too will endure in the race of faith. And we will do so with joy. We are called to endure. We are called to endure for the joy that is set before us. Michael Kruger writes, having a hard race does not mean you cannot have joy. We tend to wish we had an easier race so we could be happier. But in the Christian life, pain and joy often go together. In the midst of very deep struggle, a very deep struggle, pain and suffering, you still find joy. Most of us want our trials and challenges to go away. We think that if we can just get rid of the hard parts of life, then joy will be ours. But that is not how it works. For Christ, joy was the result of pain. Do you tend to think this way? I know I do. Oh, if I can just get rid of this problem. If this could just go away. If this could just get better. Then my life will be good. But we need to think in a different way. We need to think in a different way, recognizing that pain and struggle, opposition, hardship, is actually a path to greater joy to knowing God, to experiencing him in a deeper, richer way. We fix our eyes on Jesus by reminding ourselves of who he is, what he has done, what he has promised he will do, and ultimately by delighting in him. He is our prize. He is our great 
reward. And he is immeasurably better than anyone or anything else. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Delight yourself in him. If you are not a Christian, our prayer for you as a church family is that you will look to Jesus and be saved. We are all in need of a savior because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standards. Our sin is a rejection of God. It's a rebellion against him, his ways, and his good plan. And therefore, the consequence of our sin is to be separated from God for all of eternity in hell. If we choose to rebel against God, the consequences of our sin is that we will be separated from God. But God, who is loving, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for rebels such as us to be reconciled to him, to be restored to him, to be forgiven of all of our sins and receive the gift of eternal life. And the way that he has provided is through his son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world as the savior of the world. And Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. He lived the perfectly righteous life for our sake. And then he went to the cross to take the punishment for our sin in our place as our substitute. He died, was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death. He appeared to hundreds of people, proving that he was alive and that he is alive. After 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God. And friends, he will come again to judge everyone. And our only hope for salvation on the day of judgment is found in Jesus Christ. Those who take refuge in Jesus Christ will be saved and will be welcomed into Christ's kingdom for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian, believe in Christ and be saved. If you are a Christian, you are in the race of faith and you need to run with endurance and look to Jesus. Finally, we must embrace discipline. On the one hand, we need to discipline ourselves. We've already seen this. When you're competing, when you're training, when you're running in a race, you need to discipline yourself. But there is another side to discipline. We need to embrace the Lord's discipline. It doesn't take a lot of humility to discipline yourself. It takes intentionality. It takes commitment. It takes resolve. It takes accountability. But it doesn't take a lot of humility. As a matter of fact, if you succeed in disciplining yourself, it can become a point of pride. Look at me. Look how I'm living my life. Look how I'm living a disciplined life. We need to be careful that as we pursue and live a disciplined life, it does not become a point of pride. But to receive and embrace discipline by the hand of someone else does require humility and submission. When someone else tells you you're wrong, when someone else applies a consequence, that requires humility. That requires you to submit. That requires you to embrace discipline. To encourage Hebrew Christians to embrace the Lord's discipline, the author reminded them of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, which says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him he, whom he loves. 
as a father, the son in whom he delights. The key to embracing the Lord's discipline in any specific scenario is to understand the big picture and his overarching purpose in our discipline. Let's think about this for a moment. The Lord is our prize. He is our great reward. There is nothing better than knowing the Lord. There is nothing more satisfying. There is nothing more pleasurable. There is nothing better than knowing the Lord and experiencing his presence. But without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That that creates a problem for us. We know that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we have not yet been glorified. We have not yet been freed from the presence of sin. As those who have been saved by grace through faith, who await our glorification, we still sin. God loves us and wants us to enjoy him. He hates our sin, which is an affront to his holy character. Now that we've been saved and belong to him, he deals with our ongoing sin with loving discipline. The point is this, because God loves us and we are sinners, we ought to expect the Lord's discipline to be a regular part of our Christian lives. God loves us. He delights in us. He wants us to enjoy fellowship with him and his sweet presence. Our sin is an affront to him and hinders our ability to enjoy his presence. Therefore, he disciplines us so that we will turn from sin and enjoy him, which is the best thing we can enjoy. So you see, his discipline is motivated by love for us and a desire for us to enjoy him. Rather than despise the Lord's discipline, we ought to embrace it. I heard a story of a couple whose two-year-old son began to crawl out of his crib during nap time. At first, they didn't think much of it. It wasn't a big problem until one day they got a knock at their door, and when they opened their door, their neighbor was holding their son. He had gone out into the yard within a mere feet of being in grave danger. And so at that point... Climbing out of the crib became a matter of discipline. They disciplined their son when he tried to climb out of the crib. He didn't understand it. He cried. He threw fits. His feelings were probably hurt. Maybe he thought his parents were just being mean. But they knew better. They knew what he did not understand, that they were disciplining them because they loved him, and they cared about him, and they wanted him to live Think about the gap in understanding between the two-year-old son and the parents. Think about the gap in understanding. He did not understand why they were disciplining him, but they understood. They understood why. They saw the big picture. They can comprehend and understand things that he failed to comprehend. Now consider that gap in understanding 
and recognize and understand that the gap in understanding between that two-year-old boy and his parents is small compared to the gap in understanding between us and the Lord. We don't understand. We want to ask why. The Lord knows infinitely more than we know. He understands infinitely more than we understand. So when we don't understand, that's okay because he does. He disciplines us because he loves us. He disciplines us through trials and suffering. He disciplines us through disappointments and loss. He disciplines us by taking things from us. He disciplines us by allowing us to feel the pain and sting of our sin. I don't mean that everything that bad happens to you is the Lord's discipline. Sometimes you suffer because of the sin of others. Sometimes you suffer because we live in a world that's riddled with sin. But the Lord does discipline us. And that is a regular part of our Christian lives, of our discipleship. When this happens, we need to take God at his word. We need to train ourselves to respond by trusting his love. I have seen people doubt the goodness of God when God took something from them or failed to give them something. When that happens to you, remind yourself that God loves you and is working to give you something immeasurably better than whatever it is you desire. It's not that we never say, why, God? But we don't stay there. Psalm 13 provides a beautiful example of this. The psalm begins, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you hear that anguish? Do you hear those questions? But listen to how the psalm ends but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Oh, he questioned, he wrestled, he struggled, but he didn't stay there. He got to the place where he says, I will trust in your steadfast love. When things happen to you that you don't understand, that are painful, You may question, you may wrestle, you may struggle. That's okay, but brothers and sisters, don't stay there. Get to that place where you say, Lord, you love me. I don't understand, but I understand that you love me and I will trust in you. In Romans 8, 28, we read, and we know for that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God works all things, all things, not some things, not most things, all things for the good of those who love him to conform us into the image of Jesus. That is the prize to be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we might share in his holiness. And he is working all things to that end because he loves us. Discipline does not feel good, but it produces a harvest of righteousness. Growing in righteousness or being conformed to the image of Jesus is worth the pain of discipline. So how do we respond to the Lord's discipline? We embrace it by reminding ourselves that God loves us more than we can imagine. And his discipline is for our good. 
We respond by lifting our hands, strengthening our knees, making straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may be healed, so that we do not remain in a state of discouragement, so that we do not persist in sin, so that what is lame may be healed. Rather than remaining discouraged, rather than remaining in sin, we remind ourselves of the promise and we endure in following Jesus and pursuing righteousness. We also embrace the Lord's discipline by joining a church, understanding that the Lord has given his authority to the church so that we might hold one another accountable and discipline one another when necessary. God gives the church his authority, and we are to use that authority to discipline each other, to call each other to repentance. If you're unwilling to join yourself to a church, to commit to a church, what we call membership, if you're unwilling to do that, you are resisting the Lord's discipline because the Lord has given his authority to the church to practice discipline. That is his design. That is his plan. So if you're unwilling to do that, you're not embracing the Lord's discipline. We all need to commit ourselves to a local church to the authority that God has given to his church, that we might hold each other accountable, that when necessary, we might call each other to repentance. That is good. We all need this. We all need this accountability. Embrace the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline is good. He disciplines us because he loves us. It does not feel good at the time, but it produces a harvest of righteousness that we might share in his holiness. And there's nothing better than sharing his holiness and enjoying his sweet presence. Our passage ends with a warning. Whereas we're giving all these positive examples of heroes of the faith, we're given a negative example in Esau. You can read about Esau in Genesis chapter 25 in the following chapters. In that story, he was very hungry one day. And when he came back from hunting, Jacob had made some stew and he was so hungry that he asked Jacob, his younger brother, for the stew. And Jacob said, give me your birthright and I'll give you the stew. And Esau's like, okay, fine, I'll give you my birthright, whatever. I'm so hungry, I just want the stew. And we read that Esau despised his birthright. He despised what was holy. He despised the promise and traded it to ease his physical discomfort. The Hebrew Christians were tempted to ease their social discomfort and perhaps their physical discomfort by shrinking back from Jesus, despising the gospel, despising the promises. And so whereas the author provided these positive examples of faith, he provided the negative examples. He said, don't, don't be like Esau. Don't shrink back. Don't despise the promise because here's what happened to Esau. Eventually, he wanted to repent but it was too late. The author is saying, there will come a time for you when it will be too late to repent. The opportunity to repent does not remain forever. Repent while there's time. We don't know how long we will live. We don't know when our lives will end, but our opportunity to repent is limited. Therefore, don't shrink back from Christ and his promises. Don't despise these things, but rather hold fast to them and endure. Walk in repentance for your sins. Brothers and sisters, how will you run the race? 
Have you embraced this? Have you embraced the race of faith? Are you disciplining yourself that you might run with endurance? Are you seeking to walk in repentance by laying aside, laying down every weight, everything that hinders you, everything that trips you up? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you reminding yourself of who he is and what he has done for you, how he endured the cross for your sake because he loves you and delights in you? Are you running with endurance? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you embracing the Lord's discipline? Recognizing that we are sinners in need of discipline and his discipline is good. We need the Lord's discipline. His discipline produces in us a harvest of righteousness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul wrote toward the very end of his life, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, may this be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We praise your great name. You are awesome. You are our delight. You are our great reward. There is nothing better than knowing you, than dwelling with you, than enjoying you. We pray, Lord, that we will be those who run the race of faith with endurance as we look to Jesus, as we embrace your discipline that we might, we might walk in repentance and share in your holiness. Thank you for Jesus who endured the cross for our sake. What an incredible gift. What extraordinary love. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.